Now, what you're going to want to do for tonight's study is have a finger in Numbers 10 and 11, and also um, maybe put your bookmark in your Bible, if you've got one, over in Galatians chapter 5. Because as we get further in, we're going to kind of bounce back and forth a little bit. So... Numbers 10 and Galatians 5, those are the two primary sections we're going to look at. We've got a bunch of little scriptures we'll throw in as usual as we go along. Um, this is exciting. This, this section now of Numbers, we are finally moving on. We're finally moving out. Israel is going to move out tonight from Mount Sinai. We've had them there a long time. So this is exciting. I saw, saw Ben kind of go, yeah, Good. No more laws. No more rules, at least for now. Save that for Deuteronomy. So Numbers chapter 10, let's uh, pray one more time and get into the Word tonight. Father, thank you so much for loving us as we have already prayed and for blessing us and for helping us to see you. And Lord, I pray that you will answer our hearts tonight. For as we study through here, Father, we're also grappling with our lives. And we're struggling to know what it means to follow you. What it means, Father, to live and to walk in grace. What it means as Christians to treat one another with love. And to care about the things that you care about. All of these things, Lord, um, we deal with those. We're here tonight, Father, and especially this group who who makes it back here week after week. um, Father, has a hunger to walk the way you want us to walk, to, to truly practice righteousness in our lives. pray that you'd help us to do that, Father. And give us a strength beyond ourselves, and Holy Spirit, just take over. Even if it has to be bit by bit and inch by inch of our hearts, take over and rule and reign within us, Lord. Father, even this morning, I'm just reminded of the flesh and how the flesh creeps in and how the carnality in all of us just fights and battles to take control. God, you lead out and we find ourselves straggling behind. You show us good things and give us great care. And our flesh cries out for more of the flesh. And so, God, we just need you to work on us. And we submit ourselves to you. We open ourselves up to this. We realize, Father, we may be asking for challenges. We may be asking for difficulties. Uh, maybe even hardships, Lord. But we realize also that if we walk under the shadow of your wing, if we abide, as we saying, in your shelter, Lord, that we will always be protected. And we will always be safe in your care. So, Holy Spirit, lead us tonight. Help us to see you in these pages. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well Numbers chapter 10 begins, as we saw on Sunday, with God talking to Moses about making the two silver trumpets. It's the last reminder of what needs to be done before they leave. Now he had told Moses prior to this to have the two silver trumpets made. Apparently they had forgotten or just hadn't gotten around to it. And so the chapter begins with God saying, make those trumpets, you're going to need them. You're going to blow those trumpets and it'll be time to move out. You're going to blow the trumpets in time of war, in time of convocation or gathering people together. We talked about all of that on Sunday and we spent quite a bit of time once again talking about the rapture of the church. Looking at the first trumpet that that was God's voice at Sinai and then looking at the last trumpet which Paul indicates is the rapture. And you may wonder, why do we keep coming back to the rapture? Why do we keep talking about the rapture? Well, I got an interesting email this week. had nothing to do with the message on Sunday, but from uh, Laura Pierce, who works with our kids. 
And she was passing it along saying to anyone with small children, this is an important thing to note. And it was all a study that had been done on smoke detectors. And it was a little video that you could play and you watch it and it shows at first this little girl about three, four years old lying in bed sound asleep and then you hear a fire alarm, a smoke detector going off. And the expose that the news station was doing was that the smoke detectors, this one was right outside of her bedroom. And it was going off at full bore, you know, the, the horribly annoying sound they make, and she slept right through it. And the news indicated or said that over half of all children that die in home fires sleep right through smoke detectors. They never wake up. And I read that and I thought, huh, there's a parallel to the last trumpet. That we not be found asleep when that trumpet sounds. That we not be caught off guard. And so that's why if you wonder, does Rick just have a hang up about the rapture? Well, partially, no, because I can't wait for him to come. I can't talk about that enough. But also partially because we need to have our ears attuned to the sound of the trumpet. So that when it blows, we're not caught off guard, we're not surprised, we're not living as we're going to see Israel do, so hungry for the flesh that we're completely missing the things of the Spirit. I also find it interesting that God seems to keep bringing us back to it even as we've studied through the Old Testament. These pictures, these symbols, these two trumpets as we read. But now, the trumpets are made. And so tonight we move on. We begin in verse 11 of chapter 10. And it tells us in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. When the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran, or then the cloud settled down, in the wilderness of Paran. And so they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. The standard of the camp of the sons of Judah, according to their armies, set out first. With Nachshon, the son of Amminadab, over its army. And Nethanel, the son of Zuar, over the tribal army of the sons of Issachar. And Eliab, the son of Helon, over the tribal army of the sons of Zebulun, or Zebulun. And then in verse 17, the tabernacle was taken down. And the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who were carrying the tabernacle, set out. You might remember Gershon and Merari are Levites. Okay, they're tribes within the tribe, or families within the tribe. And so they do their job. They set out carrying all the, the um, implements of the tabernacle. Verse 17 says, Next, the standard of the camp of Reuben. According to their army, set out with Eliezer, the son of Shadur, over its army. And Shalumiel, the son of Zuri Shaddai, over the tribal army of the sons of Simeon. And Eliasaph, or Eliasaph, the son of Deuel, was over the tribal army of the sons of Gad. Then the Kohathites set out. Again, this is now the third section of the Levites. The Kohathites, they set out carrying the holy objects, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. Next, the standard of the camp of the sons of Ephraim, according to their armies, was set out with Elishama the son of Amihud over its army, and Gamaliel the son of Petazur over the tribal army of the sons of Manasseh, and Abidin the son of Gideoni over the tribal army of the sons of Benjamin, and then the standard of the camp of the sons of Dan, according to their armies, which formed the rear guard for all the camps, set out with Ahiezer the son of Amishadai over its army, and Jael, the son of Akran, over the tribal army of the sons of Asher. And finally, Ahira, the son of Enan, over the tribal army of the sons of Naphtali. This was the order of the march of the sons of Israel by their armies as they set out. So the people, finally we get to move. Now we're, we're moving away from Sinai. It's now going to become a distant history. They're going to move out for three days and settle in this wilderness, the wilderness of Paran, 
Uh, Paran, just if you want to note, this means ornamental. Doesn't really have a whole lot of application. It's just a place where they where they they end up this uh, at this first stop and they begin to camp there. But I want you to think about something, and it's the only thing we're going to look at in this section of verses. There's more that you could look at if you want. You can go back and make comparisons. We've talked about all of these leaders in chapter uh, one, 1 and 2 of the book of Numbers. We've looked at these leaders and how they set out. We looked at how the camps were set up, all of that. So you can restudy that if you'd like to. But I just want you to focus on one thing before we move on in this chapter. And that's Judah. Judah goes first. Of all of the twelve tribes of Israel, Judah goes first. You might wonder if the other brothers of the other tribes are saying, how come Judah always gets to go first? And every time they move out, Judah does. Judah will be the first tribe out. This is God's setup. He wants Judah to go first. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, Judah is the tribe of kings. It's the tribe of leaders. It's through Judah that we'll see Saul rise up, and David, and Solomon. And then after the split of northern Israel and southern Israel, or, or Judah, the, the kingdom of Judah down south will then continue to produce kings through this line all the way up to the great king, which is Jesus. Jesus comes through the tribe of Judah. Judah foreshadows the Messiah. Now I want to quickly look back and see something. It's important, kind of maybe a review for some of you. Uh, might be new for others. But Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. What's absolutely amazing about Scripture is that prophecy proves the validity of the Bible. It's the only book, it's the only religious book, the only holy book of a religious people that contains prophecy both indicated for the future and fulfilled. It's the only book that says, test me, we'll prove ourselves, and if the lights go out, have a nice evening, I'm heading for the door. (laughs) Genesis 49, chapter chapter 49, verse 8, um, we see Jacob, and Jacob begins to prophesy over these 12 sons, who will be 12 tribes, and we see these prophecies played out over time, and it's absolutely stunning. But I just want to look at Judah for a second, and you might even want to jot a few things down if you do that in the margin of your Bibles. But Genesis chapter 49 verse 8, Jacob on his deathbed, deathbed is prophesying over Judah. And he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemy, of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. First thing to know about Judah, understand about Judah is Judah is a leader. Judah is a leader. But the question is, how does he lead? And I think this is interesting. Judah's very name means praise. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Well, the name Judah, or Yehuda, literally in the Hebrew, means praise. Makes me think of Hebrews 13, 15 that says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Psalm 100, verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And I believe that one of the reasons Judah is a leader is Judah leads out in praise. And that's a way to lead. That's the way a true leader will lead. Not in praise of himself, or even so much in praise of those around him, but in praise of the Lord. A leader is a worshiper. Someone who praises God, who focuses on God and not on himself. And gang, that's exactly what Jesus did. Now we look back at at Jesus' earthly ministry, and we know, we we have the end of the story, that He is glorified Messiah, that He's resurrected, that He is King of all kings. And yet, when we look at Him, if we think about Him as King, some of the things He said on earth were absolutely stunning, and this one is one of the most stunning. 
John chapter 5 verse 41 He said I do not receive glory from men This is Jesus Who we praise and glorify constantly But at this point He says I do not receive glory from men But I know you He's talking to the Pharisees That you do not have the love of God in yourselves And then he says something here He says I have come in my Father's name In other words I'm not even coming in my name Jesus, when he emptied himself and became human, really emptied himself. I'm not coming in my name. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And then he says something which, by the way, I believe indicates Antichrist. He says, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. The Antichrist is going to come into this world, and he's going to come in his own name. He's going to come in his own glory, and he's going to magnify himself, and he's going to wow the nations. And Jesus calls it early on, someone's coming in his own name, Israel, and you're going to receive him. I don't even come in my name. I come in the name of my Father. You do not receive me. And then he says these words. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Jesus, of the tribe of Judah, leads out in praise. His praise was always to the Father. And in his earthly ministry, constantly, time after time, Jesus returned people to the Father. He said, I don't even speak my own words. I only speak that which the Father tells me to speak. I can't even act on my own, he says. I only do that which I see the Father doing. I have come in my Father's name. Jesus leads out with praise. And I think it's really cool that Jesus never asked us to do anything he hasn't done himself. He led out with praise. He invites us to do the same. To lead out, and I would encourage you in this fellowship, to lead out with praise. And don't praise the leaders. Don't praise the pastor. And don't be so focused on praising each other as much as praising the Lord and pointing people back to Him, constantly going back to Him. Well, Judah is a leader. Judah also lies down as a lion. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp, or cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Jesus was called Lion, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And this this lion that lies down symbolizes two things, the power, but also the peace of Jesus. Powerful peace, peaceful power, however you want to say it, Jesus lies down as a lion, the Lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation chapter 5. But Jesus is also Lord. Judah was also Lord Lee. Verse 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now this is important to note, and as Bible students you need to really get this down, the word Shiloh here is indicative of Messiah. Shiloh was a place in Old Testament times, but it also was a name that literally means a person of rest person of rest and so Jacob prophesying over Judah says the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes until the person of rest comes the man of peace the true man of peace and Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28 come to me and I will give you rest now if you're stressed out if you're worried if you're overworked Jesus says come and relax in me I will give you rest Listen, this is what I really want you to get down. You may have heard part of this before, but I call this the Messianic window, or the window of Messiah. You realize in all of the history of the world, according to the Bible, there was only a limited amount of time that Messiah could even show up. 
He couldn't show up too early, and he couldn't show up too late. There was a, literally a limited amount of time. Watch this, the Messianic window. It had to open sometime before Jewish rule was completely lost. Listen to what he said again. The scepter, or the, the rule, will not depart from Judah, or the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. So that means at least up to the point when Shiloh comes, Judah would have some semblance of self-rule. They wouldn't lose that. And they had that when Jesus was born. Judah still had self-rule. They were uh, you know, under Rome, but they still were allowed certain powers of their own, certain rules, certain authority, number one of which was capital punishment. And to the Jewish people of the day, capital punishment was still a symbol that they had rule over themselves. They could punish, they could determine things themselves. Rome let them do that until around 12 AD. Josephus tells us that Roman procurator Caponius removed the scepter of legal power from Judah. He stripped it away, said you no longer have authority to, to kill anybody. Which is interesting because had they had authority to, for capital punishment, Jesus would have been stoned to death and not crucified. But because early on, when Jesus was but a child, that scepter was taken away, that rule was taken away, because of that, at the time of Jesus' death, it was by Roman capital punishment and not Jewish. And it had to be Roman because it had to fulfill other prophecies. It all fits together. But we're told also in the Babylonian Talmud that the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling class, that group of, of rulers over Judah, they put on sackcloth and ashes. And they walked the walls of Jerusalem weeping on the day that the scepter, that their self-rule was taken away from them. And they were weeping and they were saying, Woe to us, the scepter has departed from Judah and Shiloh has not come. You see, they interpreted prophecy literally. They truly believed that they would have self-rule until Messiah came. Well, they lost self-rule. They were finally completely stripped of self-rule. And they were saying, woe to us. There is no Messiah here. And yet Messiah was right under their noses. A 12-year-old boy sitting on, in the temple, confounding and astounding the priests. 12-year-old Jesus. On the very day, Josephus tells us, that they lost self-rule, Shiloh was there. Messiah was there. So, biblical prophecy, and according to what Jacob says, Shiloh comes. They won't lose that rule. So, the window starts there. It has to be sometime before. Shiloh would have to come before A.D. 12. Because that's when they lost the rule. And it also, Shiloh also had to come between A.D. 12 and the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. This is the Messianic window. Daniel 9.27 tells us that this same Messiah would be cut off. And after he was cut off, Jerusalem would fall. And so that means that between A.D. 12 and A.D. 70, somewhere in there, that's the Messianic window. No Messiah could come before A.D. 12 because the Jews still had self-rule. No Messiah could come after A.D. 70 because that was when Jerusalem fell. So you put that together and there's the window. A.D. 12 to A.D. 70. And there's only one person who fits the bill who came between A.D. 12 and A.D. 70. And that's Jesus Christ. So when people say, why do you believe in Jesus? You can say, well, the Old Testament predicted that there was a time frame that Messiah could come. And there's only one man who truly fit that bill. Along with all the other many prophecies that he fulfills. That's Jesus of Nazareth. 
We're going on. Jacob talking again about Judah says he ties his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and in robes in, and his robes in the blood of grapes. And that's talking about a landowner. So if you're taking notes, we've seen that Judah is a leader. He leads out in praise. He's a lion, lion of the tribe of Judah. He is Lord, and he is also a landowner. He's the one who has the right to tie his fold to the vine. He's the one who washes his robes in the blood of grapes. And verse 12 is interesting. It says, his eyes are, if you're reading American, the New American Standard Version, it says, his eyes are dull from wine. That word dull is literally darker than, darker than wine, and his teeth white from milk. And it's a picture there of a lamb. A lamb. So he is the Lord, the lion, the landowner, and the lamb, Jesus. And may he lead us as well. Okay, we'll go back to Numbers chapter 10. So Judah leads out. Judah, this picture of Messiah, going out, going ahead. And as he leads out, watch what happens here. Verse 29. Then Moses said to Hobab, great name, Hobab, the son of Reuel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we're setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we'll do good for you. For the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. But he, Hobab, said to him, I will not come, but rather will go to my own land and my relatives. And then he said, Moses said, please do not leave us. Inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be as eyes for us. And so it will be if you go with us that whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. What's going on here? I really like the heart of Moses. He apparently has some fondness or affection for for this uh, brother-in-law, Hobab, his brother-in-law. There must be some connection there. Moses wants Hobab to come with him. And as they said out, he says, Hobab, no, don't go back to Midian. Don't go back to your people. Come with us. Because God's promised to do good for us. And if you're with us, good is going to happen to you. And Hobab kind of puts him off a little bit. I, you know what? I'm going to go back to my people. I, you don't need me here. You've got you know, the Lord leading the cloud by day and fire at night. You, you've got the Lord's help. You don't need me. And Moses presses him a bit. He says, you know where we should camp. You'll be like eyes for us. Now that's interesting because Moses knew very well by this time that God would be their eyes. That God knew where to camp. He didn't need Hobab to do those things. So why does Moses talk to Hobab in such a way? Gang, he's offering Hobab what a lot of people need to hear. That they're needed. That there's a place for them. That there's a purpose for them. Jesus wants Hobab to come along. Or not Jesus, sorry. Moses wants Hobab to come along. And so he says to Hobab, Hey, look, we need you. You can help us find Cam. You can be our eyes. It's important. There's a a role for you here. What are you saying? I'm saying grab your Hobab. And you can write that in your Bibles. (laughs) Grab your Hobab. What exactly does that mean? Listen, Paul says it this way. 1 Corinthians 9.19 He says, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. That's what Moses is doing. He wants Hobab to be blessed. And so he's coming up with whatever he can to entice, literally to entice Hobab to come with him. Giving him a purpose, a role. You can help us out. And so Hobab feels needy. He says, oh, okay, well, if you need me, And so often that's a great way to deal with people in our Christian lives. And we can really use your help in this. Can you you stay involved? People need that that sense of, of being needed. And you know what? God can do anything. 
We've discovered here at the bridge, God can do whatever He wants to do, and He doesn't need a single one of us to do it, and yet He's chosen to use us to do it. He's chosen to place the gospel in the hands of human beings and say, all right, now tell people about it. Share about me. Get them involved. Hook them in. And that's what Moses is doing with Hobab. Paul goes on to a fantastic verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I may win those who are under the law. He says, I'm free, I'm saved by grace, but I know some people who don't think they are, who are still trying to live under the laws of Judaism, so I'm going to talk their language. I'm going to walk with them. Paul would later encourage others to be circumcised simply so that those they're going to preach to would not be, would at least feel like they understood them or were walking that same path. He goes on and he says, to those who are without law, Gentiles, I am as one without law. Though not being without the law of God, but I'm under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without law. To the weak, he says, I became weak, so that I may win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul doesn't want to partake of the gospel by himself. He wants to partake with others. He wants to be a fellow partaker. And so he says, I become all things to all people. And you might hear that and go, wow, that sounds like one of those seeker-driven churches. Doesn't it? Isn't that kind of the philosophy of the secret church? Let's become all things to all people. Let, let's change things and let's water things down and let's try and make ourselves look as little like church as possible so that we can win some. And you can make a case for it using this verse, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I'm just becoming all things to all people. What's the problem? The problem with many of the so-called seeker churches in our day is in the attempt to win, compromise sets in. It's not a matter of becoming all things to all people. That's fine. The issue is compromising who we are, what we are, and what the Word really teaches. It's, it's drawing back in compromise. Paul's heart, Moses' heart, they're not about compromise, but about compassion. Paul's heart, is he's not into salesmanship, but he's into sensitivity. He becomes all things to all people, but guess what he brings with him? The Word. And he doesn't compromise the word. Oh, he'll speak in a Gentile's language. He'll speak in the language of a Jew. But he always brings the word to those who need to hear it. And this is a great verse just to have in your head. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. We are not like many, peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That word pedal in the Greek is kapelos, which literally means corrupt. Corrupt. We're not those who are out corrupting the word. Well, why do they translate it pedal? Because literally it applies to a retail huckster. Someone who's selling something cheap for exorbitant prices. Someone who's out there to rip someone else off. A scam artist passing off a shoddy product for some extra bucks. And Paul says, that is not how we approach people with the Word of God. Listen, as I seek to make myself available to all people, speaking whatever language I need to, being as, as relatable as possible, I do so to bring them the true and unadulterated Word of God. This is where there is no compromise. This is where I present what it says, and truth is truth, and I do not back off of it. I present the truth as it is. Now I will speak their language. 
you know, laid back. And you know, think about when people come into the barn and they and they they hang out with us here. We got jeans on, jeans and sweatshirts. It's very comfortable. It's very casual. There are no trappings. There are no you know stained glass or big pipe organs. There are no trappings of church. And for some, that's really, in fact, Spencer is one of the reasons he came the first time. Because he was willing to walk into a barn. Okay, I'll go into a barn. <laughs> but I'm not going into a church. And so all things to all people, it's a very casual, comfortable place. But as you know, when we walk into this barn, we do not compromise worship. And we certainly don't compromise the Word of God. Let it be what it is. And I honestly, I didn't really know. I mean, I knew the Word was powerful. I had no idea it would have the impact it's had. I really didn't. It's been so fun just to watch. Wow. I mean, and there are, there are Sundays I stand up and I know what I'm going to preach is harsh. And I know it's going to, you know, it's going to push some buttons. And I walk out, I walk in afraid and I walk out just blessed at people saying, boy, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Thanks for preaching the truth. And I go, all right. Cool. I guess I'll do it again, Father. See how many weeks in a row we can really push the envelope here. But it's just God's word. And as we've said before, God's Word has a way of of cutting in our lives, but not so much painfully as incisively or decisively, surgically, going right to the heart of the matter and changing us like we need to be changed. So anyway, all that to say this, if we know and we believe, as we talked about Sunday, that the trumpet is about to sound, then we need to not fear being those who trumpet the truth. We're not selling something cheap here. We're not selling something tawdry. We're not retail hucksters or peddlers. We are bringing the truth to a world that needs to hear the truth. And I'm talking about confidence in the product. Moses was totally confident that if Hobab Hobab came along, he would be blessed. And so he invites him to come. We're going on now. Verse 32 says, So it will be if you go with us, whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. So grab your Hobab. Get a hold of those people around you. Seek to know what the need is, where their situation is, and speak into their life scripture that they need to hear. You may have a brother-in-law like Moses who's blase about church, or a cousin who hasn't heard the word, or maybe someone who just needs to feel needed good. Need them. Need them right into the door. Need them into the body of Christ. You might say, well, again, we can do this without them. We don't necessarily need that. That's not the point. It doesn't matter if we need them or not. The Lord wants us to invite. You think God really needs us, by the way, to trumpet the truth? He could do it. In fact, during the tribulation, He will do it. It will be all God doing it. All of His supernatural power calling people to salvation. And then Revelation tells us, and if you were in the Revelation study, you know this, along about chapter 7 or so, we see the greatest soul harvest possibly in all history, and we're not there to do it. But right now, in this age, God is calling us to trumpet the truth. Verse 33, going on. Thus they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. So you see, the Lord's presence at the Ark is seeking out the resting place. They really didn't need Hobab at all. But he wanted him to come. Verse 34, The cloud of the Lord was over them by day. And when they set out from the camp, then it came about when the Ark set out that Moses said, and you're going to see two short prayers that are wonderful here. Moses said, when they set out, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when it came to rest, he said, 
Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. A couple of great prayers. A prayer for setting out and a prayer for settling in. A prayer for starting the day and a prayer for ending the day. Lord, as you begin in the morning, scatter my enemies today. Take them out. Rise up, O Lord. Go before me. Scatter those dark things of the spiritual realm, things that are unseen to me, things that I'm not even aware of. Father, scatter them. Break. I love this. Uh, David would say it this way in the Psalms. Break their teeth. (laughs) That's a great thing to say about your enemies. Break their teeth, Lord. Psalm 3, verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, my God. You have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. A prayer for setting out. But then Moses also prays this wonderful prayer for settling down. Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. As we settle down, stay with us. Keep us. Be close to us. Two great prayers. Now, Numbers 11 is all about the whining in the present and the pining for the past. We got through chapter 10. Let's see if the Lord lets us go through chapter 11. (laughs) You're going to watch now the children of Israel three days out. Just three days are going to start to whine and start to complain. And the rest of our time tonight, we're going to see three practical ways to to handle whining and pining in our own lives. So if you happen to be kind of a complainer, this chapter is really for you. Verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed, watch this, some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. And so the name of that place was called Taborah, which means burning, Taborah, because of the fire of the Lord that burned among them. So what are they exactly complaining about? At this point, we have no idea. It doesn't tell us. It just tells us they become like those who complain. They just start to whine. Maybe their feet were sore. Maybe they were tired. Maybe it was a little hot that day. Or they were a little thirsty. Whatever it was, we don't know. The content of the complaints is completely irrelevant, which is often the case when we whine and complain. Think about that. You get on a whining spree, and typically, I don't know if it's you, but I know for me, I get down to a certain point where I'm not even sure why I started whining in the first place. I don't even know what the original complaint was, but man, I've gotten down this road a ways, and I'm going to keep it going. And that's what's going on here. They're just whining, they're complaining, and I love this. God says, you want to complain? I'm going to give you something to complain about. And he lights a little fire in the outskirts of the camp, and he begins to burn. You want to be whiners? I'll give you something to whine about. I I drop my kids off and pick them up every day at Pass Lake. And they jump on the bus, and they go on into Anacortes Middle School and High School. And in the afternoons, I come back and pick them up, usually around 2.45. There are days if I'm really deep in study or maybe I'm in the middle of a phone call or something's going on and I can't get out the door real quick to pick them up. And so they'll have to wait, oh, five or ten minutes. And after about four times of my kids complaining, getting in the car and going, you're late again, you're late again, I finally say, you know what, kids? If you want to complain, I'll give you something to complain about. I'll tell you what, why not tomorrow you walk home from Pass Lake, across the Deception Pass Bridge, down the hill, over to Cornet Bay, and up Quinn Drive. You want to do that? No. 
no, I don't want to do that. And I said, you know what I did as a kid? I had to walk to school. And you know the drill. Uphill both ways, in the snow, in Southern California. Barefoot. No, I did though. I walked to school and I carried on my back all the way through the first couple months anyway of junior high my cello. Yeah. And then I understood why other kids played the flute. Anyway, the Lord says, I'm going to give you something to complain about and fire breaks out. Which is interesting because if I complain in one area of my life, it tends to cause combustion in other areas of my life. If I start to whine in one place, I end up getting burned in another place. And now keep your finger there and look over at Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians 5:13. Paul says, "You are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You're called to freedom. You have been saved by grace. But don't use that. Don't use grace as an opportunity to serve the flesh. And Linda, this is part of an answer to your email. This verse right here. Linda was asking about some, just some questions about the whole idea we're saved by grace. And there are people, and you're going to meet them, and you're going to hear them, and they may even be close friends or family of yours, who will say, Hey, I believe in Jesus. I'm saved by grace. Now I can live however I want. I'm saved by grace. I've, I've said that I believe. And Paul says, Look, you were called to freedom, but don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. You cannot walk in grace and practice sin. That's a whole other topic we'll get to another time. But Paul goes on and he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, But if you bite, watch this, and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. You know, this is what happens in fellowships, in churches, when people begin to whine or complain about each other. They end up burned. Because it begins to move around the fellowship and it always comes right back to the original complainer. And churches get eaten up by this. And Paul says, you know, if you start to whine and complain as the body of Christ, be careful. Fire's going to break out in the outskirts of the camp. Be careful you don't get completely consumed by one another. Now keep your finger there and go back. Look at this. Where does the fire break out? It's in the outskirts. Interesting. What would that cause the people of the camp to do? If they're camping and all around the camp in the outskirts, fire explodes up. What way are they going to run? They're going to go together. They're going to run in. They're going to connect more to each other, huddle together, and in so doing, they're also going to huddle closer to the tabernacle, which is an answer to the whining and the complaining in my life. If you're feeling dissatisfied, if you're frustrated, if you're bummed out or even burned out, press in. Press in. That's the time to lean in closer to the Lord. Even if you you need to express those complaints to the Lord, press in. That's what this fire caused the people of of Israel to do, is to press in. Back in Galatians 16, we'll flip back and forth a bit. Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And this is a key, again, Linda, this is a key to someone who's saying, I believe I can do whatever I want. Paul says, no, not if you're walking by the Spirit. 
Because if you're truly walking by the Spirit, if you're truly walking in spiritual faith in Jesus Christ, you're not going to live however you want to live. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And he goes on, he says, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These things are in opposition to one another. Flesh and Spirit, gang, it cannot walk side by side comfortably. He says, So that you may not do the things that you please. He says, verse 18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit... And he just got done saying, but if you're led by the Spirit, guess what? You're not going to be walking in the flesh. You cannot say, I live for Jesus, I believe in Jesus, and live a fleshly life. You can't do it. The two are against each other. So, going back again now to Numbers 11. Press in. Press in. If you're given a complaint, be careful. You might find yourself consumed. But if there are breakouts of fire in your life, press in. And understand the Lord may be inviting you to draw closer to each other and to Him as well. So the Lord burns on the outskirts. Unfortunately, the children do not learn the lesson. Watch what happens. Verse 4. So the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. And the cucumbers, oh, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone, they whine. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now, I love this. Moses describes the manna. He says, the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellium. The people go about, and they gather it, and grind it between two millstones, or beat it in the mortar, and boil it in the pot, and make cakes with it. And its taste was like the taste of cakes baked with oil and I read that and my mouth starts to water you know that bread that you can get like in Italian restaurants there's always that dipping sauce and you, 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 before they even bring it your mouth is watering this manna was good stuff this was sweet and tasty and they could make it in all sorts of different ways and verse 9 says when the dew fell on the camp at night the manna would fall with it this sweet tasty daily bread and they were sick of it they'd had enough Sick and tired of their banana pancakes. <laughs> or their manicotti. Manawiches. Manila wafers. Whatever. They, they, they say we don't want this anymore. We don't want the man. We want our pound of flesh. That's what we want. Get us, get us some flesh. Give us some meat. And by the way, we miss our leeks and our onions and our garlic and our melons and our cucumbers and all these things. Gang, guess what? They never had these things. What were they when they were in Egypt? Slaves. Slaves. They were in slavery. They didn't have all this free, all the free fish that we used to just run down to the market and get every day. Bologna. They didn't get bologna either. They didn't have this. They were slaves in Egypt. But gang, they were looking back and thinking back to the good old days a year ago or so. The good old days. Guess what? There's no such thing. There is no such thing as the good old days. They never truly happen. They're just our mind's creation of what the past was like. If you want to find another key here to fulfillment and satisfaction now, as opposed to looking back to where you've been, press on. Press on and don't look back. He said press in. If complaints or whining is causing you to struggle, press in, love more. And number two, press on. Paul says, Philippians 3.12, I press on so that I may lay a hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. 
Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Man, we've all had great experiences in the past, but those great experiences are always a mirage. They're not what they truly were. If we could really go back and relive those, we would find how much misery we truly were in at the time that we now think was so wonderful, was so great. So don't look back. Again, whenever I look backward instead of forward, I rob myself of fulfillment in the present. You want fulfillment now? Press on. Look forward. What, what better way is there to live than when you've got something special to look forward to? I mean, that whole couple of months before Cheryl and I went to Israel, I was just every day on cloud nine. I was just pumped. I couldn't wait. Oh, we're going to go. We're, we're one month. We're three weeks. We're two weeks. Next week, we're going to Israel. And then we got there. And then once we got home, it was kind of like, well, what? i got to wait another year. What do I have to look forward to now? Look forward. By the way, God reminded me what I had to look forward to. Do-do-do. Rapture, trumpet call, always something to look forward to in Christ. So Paul says, press on. Press in, press on, and now Moses finally reaches the boiling point himself as the people are crying about their manna. Moses heard the people, verse 10, weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, and this is classic, Why have you been so hard on your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? By the way, I need to point something out here. This is cleaned up a little bit. Okay, The word nurse is literally a nursing father. A nursing father? I don't think there's any such thing. What Moses is saying literally is they are a pain. As a nursing father would be in tremendous pain. Okay, I'll let you work that out theologically in your mind is what he's saying here. And then he says, verse 13, Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it's too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, kill me now. <laughs> Just shoot me now, Lord. Please kill me at once. And if I found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. Moses is bummed. And what's he doing here? He's complaining. He's whining. He's doing the same exact thing the people of Israel were doing. Moses is now doing himself. Shoot me now, Lord. They had it. They can't do it. And the Lord has two two issues to deal with here. He has the people and he has the leader. And watch what he does. First for the leader, verse 16. He says to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there. Watch this. This is great. I will take of the Spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it alone. And in this we see the beginnings, gang, of a plurality of elders for leading a group of people. 
And this is God's plan. A group of men who move together in spiritual unanimity. Unanimous choices working together under the Spirit. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Just Sunday I had a couple come up to me and say, Hey, what's the vision for the bridge? And I I told them, you know, as astutely as possible, what I often tell people when they say, what's the vision for the bridge? I go, oh, we're in a barn, you know. (laughs) There's vision, gang. The vision is Jesus is coming and we've got to get the word out. That's about it. You know, love God, love people. That's part of our vision. Going to all the world. So whatever the Bible tells us, that's the vision. But people have asked the question, well, okay, but but where are you going? What about the land? I mean, you're going to be in this barn forever, and and how long can you be in this barn? And I've thought a lot about that, and we've looked into land possibilities and and all of that. But what I've told people also, and this is something that is a, a rule of thumb for our leadership, is that we move with unanimity. That we work it out. We talk together. We pray it through. We work it through. We struggle it through, even if we have to. And you might say, that sounds like a really slow way to lead. Unanimity. I mean, two people have trouble agreeing, much less three or four. And you get a group of seven men in a room? You know how easily... I mean, women, you think you got it on it? Do you know how easily we can just talk around and around and around and around things? And a couple of my fellow elders are here, and then they understand. I mean, we, we can talk about things and leave the meeting, and I'll get home a half hour later and go, what did we decide? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> but you know what? Nine times out of ten, I'll tell you exactly what we decided. Let's pray about it. And let's come back and see what happens next month when we meet. And you know, as, as one who likes to get things done a little faster, there are times where I go, Lord, I want to know now. I want land now. I want to move forward now. And for whatever reason, God made it clear at the beginning of this church, unanimity. Move forward together. Move forward together. Well, how in the world can a group of men, we're looking at 70 here, how in the world can a group of men move together in unanimity and the answer is only by the work of the Holy Spirit that's the only way that is the only way anything will ever get accomplished in the church and so God says to Moses I'm going to take of my spirit the spirit I love it it's first person here gang the spirit who is upon you it's my spirit Moses had the Holy Spirit he had the gift of the Holy Spirit And God said, I'm going to take the same spirit and I'm going to put it on these 70 men. Because if I don't, guess what? You're not moving anywhere together. You're just going to have problems. But if you'll move together in the spirit, oh, then you'll move out. Then things will begin to happen. So, Moses does this for, or God does this for Moses. He's going to take care of his leader. Moses is whining and complaining. He doesn't do it often. And God is very patient with his leader here and says, All right, Mo, I'll I'll take care of you and share the Spirit and give you some support. Now God turns to the meat lovers. Verse 18, and this is just awesome. I love this. It really shows the sense of humor of the Lord, by the way. He says, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. And they must be going, All right, cool. He goes, You shall eat. Not one day, not two days, or five days, or ten days, nor twenty days, a whole month. 
until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying why did we ever leave Egypt you're going to eat and eat and eat you want meat God says get ready to gorge it's going to come out of your noses that's pretty extreme that's one big meat lover's pizza. And this is often how the Lord responds when we hunger for the flesh. And don't miss this. When I want more of the flesh, God often responds by saying, Okay, you want more? I'll give it to you. I will give you as much carnality and flesh as your little heart desires and more until it's coming out your nostrils. Until you can't even breathe. You've got so much flesh. I'm going to give it to you until you are absolutely sick of it. And you know how this works. You drive along in your car and you hear the Ruth's Chris Steakhouse commercial come on. And you can hear in the background the popping and the sizzling of the meat. And the announcer is talking and you're just listening going, Mmm. Oh, that sounds great. The big, juicy Ruth's Chris steak. Even the name Ruth's Chris starts my mouth watering almost immediately. So you go to your Ruth's Chris, you make the, the you know, the, um, what's it called when you, reservation, thank you. You make the reservation at Ruth's Chris, you get there, you sit down, and they bring out this steaming hot porterhouse steak. I mean, this, this thing's huge, 20, 20 ounces. You're digging into it. Maybe you've got some, you know, Mushrooms on the side, sautéed, big baked potato. And they set it down in front of you and it smells so good and it looks just great. And about four bites into the steak, all you want is a Tums and a doggy bag. Have you ever been there? You, you, you sit there and you're going, why did I do this? And as you're driving home, you're going, mm, uh. And you wake up the next morning and you, you get that little morning burp and it's steak. And you go, oh, <laughs> honey, can I have some fruit, please? You know, some fruit and toast. And that's what God's talking about. The flesh gang never satisfied. It just leaves you feeling bloated and stuffed until it's coming out of your nostrils. Verse 19. I'm sorry. No, Galatians 5.19. Flip over there real quickly. Paul carries on this same thought. He says, look, here are the deeds of the flesh. You want flesh? Here's what it looks like. Immorality, he says. And impurity. And sensuality. And idolatry. Sorcery. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Outbursts of anger. Disputes. Dissensions. Factions. Envying. Drunkenness. Carousing. And things like these. Of which I forewarn you. Just as I forewarned you. That those who practice such things. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't care if someone says. I believe in Jesus or not. If they're practicing such things. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's words not mine. It's very clear. Well, Rich, you're saying that if I'm a Christian, I get drunk one night, that I've lost it, that I'm at? No, I'm not saying that. Notice that Paul says those who practice such things. Because every one of us fall. Every one of us sin. Every one of us will be guilty of something on this list from one time to another. I might envy someone. I might just, out of frustration, stir up some strife. But it's not the practice of such things. Paul's talking about those who choose this. Literally, we're talking lifestyle carnality. I choose to live a sensuous lifestyle or an idolatrous lifestyle. 
He says, those who live this way, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom. But, he says, verse 22, what, what is the answer to bloating on meat and just, oh, I've had too much meat in my diet, too many hamburgers, too, too much steak. What's the best thing you can do physically for your body? Eat some fruit. Go on a fruit and vegetable diet. And it cleans you out. And you feel better. And it's sweet and it's light. And it's not so heavy as all that meat and flesh. And so Paul turns over and says, look, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. There's the flesh, the meat, of all those other things. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says, against, against such things there is no law. These are the things that people who walk in the freedom of Christ experience and practice. And he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Back in Numbers 11. Verse 21. Moses said, The people. Now God's telling him, I'm going to give you a glut of meat. And Moses says, The people among who I am are 600,000 on foot. Literally the men there. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Now listen to what Moses says. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? He says, where are we supposed to get all this meat? From the flocks and the fish? Surf and turf? How's this going to work, Lord? Verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power unlimited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true or not. Moses runs the numbers. He looks out over the vast people of Israel and he says, Lord, <laughs> I understand the manna. You make that fall from heaven. What are you going to make? Meat? Make meat fall out of the sky? How is this possible? You may recall, if you read a little bit earlier on in our studies, God already did it. He already did it once. He gave them quail before and fed them. Moses is forgetting this. He's not remembering God is sufficient to do everything that God wants to do or says that He's going to do. And I love this statement. I have this underlined and highlighted. Now you shall see whether my word will come true or not. And as I said a few minutes ago, the Bible is unlike any other so-called religious book in all of history. Because it's the book where God first gives His word, then fulfills His word. He first says, here's what I'm going to do. He doesn't always tell us how, by the way. Even as we look at end times prophecies today and try to figure out, how is this really going to work? How is there going to be another temple in Jerusalem for Antichrist to set up sacrifices in? And how is it going to all play out? We don't always know how. And God doesn't tell Moses how. He just says, is my power limited? Just watch. I told you I'm going to do it. Now watch me do it. And this is what Peter means, I believe, when he says, 2 Peter 2.19, that we have the prophetic word more sure. It's not just the word, it's the prophetic word. It's the word that was given and then later fulfilled. God says it and then He does it. He tells us what He's going to do and then He does it. That's why the Word of God is more sure than any other word, any other book ever given because it's the prophetic word more sure. Now watch God do it. Verse 24. It says, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And also he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. This is interesting. It tells us
tells us that the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and he took of the spirit who was upon him just like he said he would and placed him on the 70 elders and when the spirit rested upon them they prophesied but they did not do it again. So they prophesied right there they're standing around that the 70 elders of Israel they begin to they begin to speak prophetically. They're given prophetic utterance. The Holy Spirit has fallen on them and now they're prophesying it's a sign to all the people of Israel as well as to these elders that they have the Spirit. Why didn't they do it again? I don't know. I really don't know. Except that possibly at this point God wanted it as a sign of authority and not as some kind of ongoing power. He just wanted them to know from this point on the Spirit is with them. But watch what happens. Interesting, two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. So you got the 68 elders out with Moses and the people. They're all prophesying. Two guys hung back and all of a sudden, bing, they're, they're hit by the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon them and they start prophesying right in the middle of the camp, right where they are. And it tells us that a young man ran and told Moses, saying, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. This is a familiar story. He goes on and Moses says, Are you jealous for my sake? Now listen to his words. They are repeated later. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. And I say, Amen. Would that everybody have the gifts of the Spirit. Would that everybody be able to prophesy... And Paul, later on, will speak to this. But it's interesting, we see the same story happen a second time to the Apostle John and to Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 49 tells us, John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. John, just because they're not in our little fellowship doesn't mean they're not blessed with the ability to to serve and minister to people. Just because it's not happening here doesn't mean it's not of the Lord. I heard a phrase used the other day. I actually heard someone make this comment that the idea of one church helping out another church in this area was referred to as a conflict of interest. A what? Yes, that's what was said. Well, you know, if you're going to go over to that church, then you really can't help out at this church because that's a conflict of interest. I understand if you're working at one Starbucks and you want to open up your own coffee place, I can see that as a conflict of interest. But isn't our combined interest the kingdom of God? Isn't that what we're concerned about? And, and I'm not saying that, you know, you know, we're all righteous here, that we always get this down. I'm not saying that jealousy doesn't possibly crop up or envy and look at what another church is doing and go, man, why isn't that happening here? They're in this silly little barn and they're expanding their building. I mean, that's, that's not really fair. Dang. The conflict, there is no conflict of interest with those who are working in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't care where they are. And so be about supporting that and encourage that conflict of interest. Moses said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets so the Lord would put His Spirit on all of them. And guess what? If everybody in the camp of Israel were prophets, Moses would not be there to make sure everybody was doing it the right way. But God would. The Lord will govern 
and determine what is right and what is wrong. So beginning with Pentecost, isn't it wonderful? This is exactly what the Lord did. Moses said, would that the Lord put his spirit on all people? And that's exactly what he did at Pentecost. He poured out his spirit our sons and our daughters who can prophesy. Our old men will dream dreams and have visions. And, and the Lord says, this is the way I want it. My people should have my spirit. All of my people. Not just those who stand up front. Not just those who lead. Those who are pastors. All my people should have my spirit. And Paul echoes this sentiment, 1 Corinthians 14, 5. He says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more, that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, Paul says, Don't quench the spirit and do not despise prophetic utterances. This is a gift from the Lord, and I wish everybody had it. And it's God's heart for His people, as we read Galatians 5.25, that we walk in the Spirit. Because the more we walk in the Spirit, the less we're walking in the flesh. So the third thing we can do in our lives here is press upward in the Spirit. Press inward together into the Lord. Press onward, always looking ahead and not behind. And press upward in the Spirit. And one sure sign, by the way, that someone is walking in the Spirit, pressing upward in the Spirit, is they do not fear others who are walking in the Spirit as well. Others who are doing what the Lord has called them to do in other places, it is not a threat. It should never be a threat to the Bridge Christian Fellowship if another bridge planted in the little white house across the street. That should be no threat. It should be welcomed. And that's the way it should be among all the churches in this region. It's what I pray for. Now, last thing. We're almost done. Remember this wonderful act of the Spirit, this taste of the good fruit. Of the good fruit. Now it's going to precede a literal windfall of meat. Verse 31. Moses, verse 30, sorry, returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel, verse 31. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's, watch how much, this is amazing. About a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits, that would be three feet, deep, on the surface of the ground that is one serious load of quail huge everywhere you can walk without running into quail they wanted meat they got meat God doesn't mess around it says verse 32 the people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail he who gathered at least he who gathered least gathered ten homers ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Okay, so it's two cubits, so three feet deep all throughout the camp and a day's journey all the way around the camp. And the person who got the least amount of quail got ten homers. What's that? It's the equivalent of about 200 buckets of KFC. All right? Just to help you frame that a little bit. This is a lot of quail. They ate and they ate. God says, you want meat? You got it. And they gorged themselves in verse 33. This is just sick while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed like that one bite too many of the Roots Chris steak where you're starting to go and I'm done and you finish the bite but you still have the little specks of meat between your teeth and it's, you just want them out 
can I get a toothpick, you know, or maybe one of those metal dental instruments because I just got this sick. So while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. Watch this. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'ava because there they buried the people who had been greedy. Kibroth Hata'ava means literally graves of greed. Graves of greed. It's speculated by some, and I think there's good indication for this, that the plague was a direct result of gorging themselves, of overeating. They literally ate themselves to death. They literally didn't just get sick, but they died eating this meat. Their desire, gang, was a disaster. Their longing led to leanness. Their greed became a grave. And once again, we've read this verse a couple times recently. Psalm 106, 14 and 15, describing this exact thing, says they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. They tempted God in the desert, and He gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. That's what I meant before when I said when we want carnality, when we want the flesh, God often responds by saying, great, you can have it. I'm going to give you all you can feast your eyes on. You're going to chew yourself sick on it and you're going to discover that it makes your soul empty. And it makes your life lean. It doesn't fulfill. So again, the Lord would say, don't complain. Press in. Don't look back, press on, and don't gorge on flesh. Press upward to the Spirit, Psalm 38 or 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 84, 11, the Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so may we find ourselves satiated with the sweet, fulfilling fruit of the Spirit of God. And as Paul wrote, Galatians 5.25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Father, this is our prayer tonight, that you would release us from the flesh, from the carnality that we gorge ourselves with. And God, I'm finding in my life I need a constant reminder of this. I need to be attracted and drawn back to the fruit of the Spirit again and again and again. Lord, there may be some things we're individually dealing with right now that are simply of the flesh. We may be worried about money. We may be concerned about tangible, physical things. Father, we may have relationship struggles where we're just too selfish to go try to make it right. We may, Father, be touting ourselves as the righteous one and others as those in the wrong. And it's the flesh. So, Father, I pray that you would feed us on the fruit of the Spirit. Help us to walk in spiritual things. And to trust and believe in you and have faith in you for all that we are. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.